From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, April 30th. After tribal consultation, the Bureau of Land Management completed some minimal emergency treatment on the Birthing Rock petroglyph panel on Wednesday. The site is at least 1,000 years old and was found Monday morning marred by obscenities. The vandalism includes the racist phrase, white power, scrawled over ancient anthropomorphic figures. The BLM's emergency treatment has faded some areas of the graffiti, but it's still evident to the eye. The BLM is continuing to work with conservators to repair the damage. So what do land management agencies consider before attempting to repair a cultural site like Birthing Rock? For that, we spoke to the former BLM archaeologist in Moab, Don Montoya. He currently works as a consultant with Utah State Parks for the repatriation of Native American human remains and sacred objects. He also volunteers with the Utah Humanities Council and has a lot of experience in damage assessment and mitigation. Montoya says this is not the first time the Birthing Rock panel has suffered vandalism. Can you can you start with um, what does a consultant or a conservator, you know, what do they consider when it comes to damage and future repair of a petroglyph panel like Birthing Rock? I, I think the most important thing that, that needs to be uh, taken into account is the fact that uh, we need to involve the Native American community. We have a tendency with re- regard to rock art and archaeological sites to disassociate you know, the sites, the ancient sites from, you know, the modern Native peoples today. You know, this, this is more their heritage than it is ours. So I think that's the most important thing that uh, as a consultant, as a conservator, is to consider the Native Americans and notify them and be engaged with consultation. With respect to uh, the rock imagery, particularly, tribal people believe that these images are they're living entities, and when they're damaged, it's not you know, a physical damage to rock. It's a physical damage to an entity that was you know, placed there for a specific purpose. Again, the images are there for a reason. They're part of the, the cultural landscape of, of the area. In your experience, you know, has consultation with tribes and tribal partners changed in the field of archaeology over time? Oh, golly, that historically, uh, tribal partners have been ignored and they've been pushed to the background, especially during the last administration. But the last administration wasn't the only one. You know, it's, it's historically been pushed back. Native American rights have not been taken seriously. There's been non-compliance of federal statutes for years. My personal take on this, I don't know how to express it other than I see it as institutional racism. It starts with referencing indigenous peoples, Native Americans as Indians. I find that personally offensive. You know, I have Native American indigenous heritage. I have no relationship with a country of India. You know, it, it I think disenfranchises you know, our, our Native peoples, you know, from their homeland. I have a personal issue with that. It starts there. You know, it's, it's institutionalized. When you, when you think about the words remove, repair, how does a conservator go about assessing 
you know, what can be done with vandalism, like with the vandalism that we've seen this week? Yeah, in light of what I just mentioned about these uh, images being uh, living entities, any work that a conservator does, consideration is minimally invasive. You know, we don't want to cause any more damage you know, to the image, much, you know, like a cosmetic surgeon isn't going to go in with staples and big stitches. And considering the treatment, you know, we need to look at it from a perspective of minimally invasive. And oftentimes, the damage that's done can be mitigated without having to be very aggressive with, with the treatment regime. For example, a, a scratching on a rock surface, if it's a very light scratching and it uh, isn't penetrating the rock. We don't want to go in ag- aggressively with a wire brush or a rotating brush and get all that scratching off of it. The, the scratches, for example, are highlighted because the scratch leaves crushed rock. It's it's powder, that white powder that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's in there. It's crushed in. And oftentimes, you know, a conservator, knowing what they're doing, can just do something as simple as take a Q-tip wet the end of it and slowly lift out, you know, that powder residue. And you'd be surprised as to, you know, you may not even be able to detect there was a scratch there at all. So again, these are techniques that a professional conservator would do that, you know, a lay person wanting to go in and remove the scratching, you know, may aggressively take a wire brush and get rid of the scratching, but actually cause more damage than the initial scratching. So minimally invasive techniques. You know, you and I spoke a couple of years ago in 2019 about graffiti and vandalism on public lands. And it was sort of in the context of more of it seems to be happening with increased visitation. So I'm curious if you thought we were approaching some sort of crisis and feel free to interpret that phrase however you want. But you know, when it comes to destructive behavior at archaeological and cultural sites. Going back to our conversation a couple of years ago, I I put it in the context of uh, social media, that these sites were were more apparent to the public because they're brought forward through through social media, social media context. And, you know, that was my thought at the time. But reflecting back, I I think it's it's more complex than that. Uh, Given what's happening or what's happened the last couple of years, you know, we're approaching a crisis, and the crisis isn't necessarily rock art vandalism. The rock art vandalism is reflective of something else. It's, it's more symptomatic, and I think it's symptomatic of the, the social unrest that we have. You know, we're going through right now a lot of social unrest from the COVID-19 pandemic. The economic uncertainty, ideological polarization as well. The damage, I think, is is you know reflective of these issues and, and people acting out. It's more than just some of the rock imagery damage in the past. You know, Tom loves Jane. You know, with with a heart around it. People ignorantly, you know, putting their names on the rock. You know, sure. it's, it's it's much more complex than that. So I, I think it's emblematic of you know what's happening in society. Rock art is an easy target. People are particularly upset over the recent birthing rock damage because of the obscenities and, of course, the phrase white power. Have you seen this type of overtly racist vandalism at on archaeological sites before? 
you know, I, I, I've not. I, I've not seen that blatant racialized vandalism. I haven't seen that in, in, in past graffiti. Again, I think it's more reflective of, you know, what's happening in our society. Quite honestly, I expect more. I hate to be, you know, a pessimist about it, but that's just my gut feel says that we're going to see more acting out and we're going to see, you know, the rock imagery is easy venue for elements of society to vent their frustration. You know, would you talk about the vandalism that has happened to the birthing rock panel in the past uh, when you were involved at the BLM? Yeah, the, the, the vandalism in the in the past, I reflect back on it, it was scratching of initials, you know, an individual's initials that were scratched into that panel. There was one uh, that we had law enforcement uh, was pursuing it. Someone put hashtag Moab. That was the previous damage. And it was very obvious. But again, you know, we had a, a conservator mitigate the damages on that. And we, we did some other things. Uh, we, we realized that that was happening. There may be more of it. We took the approach to educate the public. So we made the effort to put some interpretive signage there to bring an awareness of the importance of the imagery and a message to not disturb it any further. We put some fencing around it to hopefully keep individuals from going forward and touching the actual images. Mm -hmm. So we we made some effort to, to mitigate the damages. And I don't know that the public was aware that that site was previously damaged and it's been mitigated actually several times. And that's what struck me when I went to the site on Monday, not only the obscenity of the vandalism, but how someone had to make a decision to jump over the wooden fence there. Signage was there. The fence Mm -hmm. was there. Right. Uh, You you can't stop these bad actors. You know, we've had similar issues at the Moonflower Rock Image panel. Right. Same thing there. We've got signage and we've got fencing. And yet we've had people jump over the fence and you know, leave vandalism, and we've mitigated the damages there. We had the same thing happen at the Sego Canyon imagery up at Thompson. You know, that, that was, I believe it was close to $30,000 in damage. You know, we, we did some work there to, to remove graffiti as well. It, it's not like the agencies are ignoring the damage. You know, it's just that the, you know, the agencies are in a position where they, they can't keep up with it. Unfortunately, the funding to do that is dependent on which administration is is in charge and how much funding the Park Service and the Forest Service and the BOR and federal agencies get. That filters down. You know, the state agencies are faced with similar problems. State parks are faced with that. Mm-hmm. The institutional lands you know, are faced with that. Fish and wildlife are faced with it. So it's it's not just for federal agencies. It's just all land holding agencies. And I would say that even trickles down to city and county. You know, you, you said we've always had bad actors. Do you also include people who have shot at petroglyphs or, you know, individuals or even institutions that have participated in looting by, you know, stealing remains and other items at, at, at sacred sites? We, we can drill down deeper in that. And this is just a social commentary. There were people living here before 1847. And I don't think that's that's realized. You know, people come over the mountaintop and they don't see big, large cities and villages, you know, and make the assumption that nobody is there. We'll just take it. You know, it's mm-hmm. part of our cultural history of manifest destiny. You know, that that that's what we're fighting is is you know the the institutionalization 
uh, racism, as I mentioned, you know, before, it's, it's just not having a cultural sensitivity. And I attribute a lot of that to ignorance. Mm-hmm. Ignorance is lack of knowledge. You know, people that don't know that can be taught. If, if you're ignorant, you can still learn. And it goes back to, you know, there's a, a lot of things, you know, a place naming, for example, we just passed a bill this last legislative session to take a, a look at the place naming of Native American archaeological sites. Uh, actually, they're uh, geophysical sites, they're map sites. So there was a bill that was passed this last legislative session, you know, to get USGS uh, the process of changing place names of derogatory Squaw Peak or Squaw Park. Mm-hmm. make it easier to ad- address a bureaucracy that it would take to, to, to make place name changes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, and, you know, that's issues to yet to become forward. You know, for example, you know, the naming of Fremont Indians, there's no tribe that has an affiliation with Civil War General John C. Fremont, you know, and yet we've got place naming of people associated with him you know that that further disenfranchises you know the native peoples that that has to be changed mm-hmm. uh, there's a change that needs to be made with regard to the naming of the archaeological culture of the anasazi people anasazi is a derogatory term to the native peoples but yet it's an archaeological term that sticks you know that that among others you know those probably issues that we could address but again, it's, uh, it involves a process, and oftentimes it's a legislative process that takes time to do that. It, it sounds like these issues are bigger than one person scrawling a racist phrase across a petroglyph site, but perhaps those actions are symptomatic of a larger illness, I guess. Yeah, and I, and I think we need, we need to address the illness and treat the symptoms, of course, Mm-hmm. But the, the symptoms are not causal. They're not the cause. Don Montoya, former Moab BLM archaeologist. He currently works as a consultant with Utah State Parks for the repatriation of Native American human remains and sacred objects. Although he may be pessimistic about the bad actors, Montoya assuredly says that he has not given up the fight against graffiti and vandalism. He provided a list of resources and programs working on solutions that includes site stewardship and respect and protect. Find those resources in the show notes of today's news on our website and podcast. And now we head to our weekly newsreel, where we speak with newspaper reporters about the stories they most recently covered in our area. Local 7th and 8th grade students, their teachers, and administrators moved into the brand new Margaret L. Hopkin Middle School this week. Doug McMurdo at the Times Independent has more from their coverage. Well, it was uh, all hands on deck Tuesday for the long-anticipated move-in at the uh, Margaret L. Hopkin Middle School here in Moab, and uh, everybody, and I mean students and teachers and everybody in between, helped uh, helped move in to to the new school. It's a beautiful building. Uh, it's got Margaret's name uh, in big letters uh, across the mm-hmm. front, uh, brick face. Um, it really is probably the nicest uh, nicest building in Moab right now, nicest new contemporary building anyway, and uh, quite a bit of effort went into it, and I know that um, 
multiple millions of dollars were spent on this project, and um, hopefully it'll uh, serve middle school students of uh, Grand County for years. The facilities director was nice enough to take me on a tour of the building, and it is quite a sight to see. I believe that they are planning to do a public open house this fall. I believe so, yes. I just I neglected to mention that the uh, the Rotary Club volunteered to also help move stuff, and uh, they, they deserve to be mentioned as well. We do have photos. Uh, I had Carter take photos, and uh, so we had uh, teachers and students even uh, uh, send us photos unsolicited, which was pretty cool. What else would you like to highlight in the paper today, Doug? Well, today at uh, 3 o'clock at Rotary Park, the uh, Moab Free Health Clinic is holding a, a silent jewelry auction to help fund its recently expanded uh, women's health services. It's a really good story. It's written by our, our freelancer, Sophia Fisher. She did a, a very good job explaining what's going on. What I found interesting was the clinic uh, discovered that a, a lot of uh, women here in Moab uh, who used its services weren't getting the follow-up that they needed. So they took it upon themselves to reach out to these women and let them know, hey, you're due for this or you're due for that. And with that reminder, they, they came in and they got those services. And it's doing a, a whole lot of good. And they're just expanding it. They've got a dedicated room uh, for women's health. Um, and I just I think it's a big thing, a big deal for Moab, especially the women of Moab. And it's something that um, you can go to this auction at Rotary Park today and um, buy something for mom for Mother's Day. Um, now there's more in the paper, Doug. Where would you like to take us next? Well, I know that it's news that um, everybody's been aware of since uh, Monday afternoon, or at least most of us have been. You can't cuss on the radio, so I'm not going to cuss. But some person uh, or persons uh, vandalized the uh, birthing rock rock art off of Cane Creek. And they wrote some vulgarities and just uh, was just a slap in the face, I think, too all of the communities of Southeast Utah, indigenous and, and otherwise. And I, we, we got comments from the Navajo Nation. Uh, mm. The BLM is offering $10,000 for information leading to the arrest and uh, conviction of those responsible. Uh, I, I would like to um, mention Mayor Pro Tem Tony Knudsen Boyd, who talked about this Tuesday when they were discussing um, the noise ordinance that they approved, which we'll talk about next, that this vandalism comes on the heels of the climber who bolted rock art near arches, uh, the recent arson out at uh, the wetlands in which uh, an observation tower was burned, downtown art that was damaged, badly damaged. These incidents are starting to pile up, and I think it's really uh, creating not just a sense of anger in town, but a sense of a real concern. Are we losing the battle and, and trying to get uh, people to behave? Now, I have no idea um, if it were tourists or locals or children or teenagers or adults. I have no idea who, who did this, but um, mm -hmm. whoever did this, I, I, I hope um, I hope they get caught because they need to be stopped. I thought those comments that Tawny Knudsen Boyd made were pretty salient as well. You know, she really was talking about a feeling of, of respect for our community. And you're right, we don't know who did it, but she's feeling a loss of respect right now. 
Yeah, I, I agree. And I, and it's not just happening, happening in Moab. I've got a friend who told me that um, uh, charcoal kilns that the Paiutes uh, made 600 years ago uh, in Nevada. Uh, they stood for 600 years. People have been appreciating them for uh, at least 100 years in Nevada. Um, somebody destroyed them. It's heartbreaking. It's one, it was one of those places where I would take out-of-town company to see. Um, now it's not there anymore. So it's really, really sad. Now, there's more in the paper. I know you wanted to mention um, some news from Moab City. Like uh, you mentioned, the city talked about noise. They made some decisions on noise uh, this week. They did. Uh, um, after a, a one-hour discussion prior to the regular meeting and then at least another hour during the regular meeting, it became quite apparent to anyone who follows the city council that there's a lot of um, angst with uh, with this whole noise issue. Um, they obviously had to make a noise ordinance that did not specifically point out to any type of vehicle. So they have three parts, three brackets. Uh, one of them is vehicle noise, and that's all vehicle noise. From 8 p.m. to 7 a.m., you cannot be on the streets if uh, you're louder than 85 decibels. The city uh, council has different hours in effect uh, than the county does. As you know, the Grand County Commission passed a similar ordinance earlier this month. Uh, their hours during the peak season, uh, May to September, uh, are 10 to 6, and the city council didn't follow that lead. Their noise ordinance for vehicles is going to be in effect from 8 to 7, 365 days a year. There was serious concerns about you know the contradiction and not being compatible with the county's hours uh, and how that would confuse people and certainly make um, enforcement more difficult than it probably needs to be. But at the same time, um, Ronnie Deraseri, she was just insistent that uh, people deserve uh, some quiet time. Um, Right. I would like to commend the, the city for compromising. The OHV enthusiast uh, requested a 96 decibel limit, and uh, people who want the quiet use and enjoyment of their home uh, wanted something quite a bit lower. So I, I think the city met somewhere in the middle. Tony Knudsen Boyd pointed out this is not going to make uh, Moab uh, a sleepy little town again, but uh, it's certainly, I believe, going to help. And I, I think more than anything, it's going to um, educate the folks who ride these OHVs that they, they really need to throttle down in town uh, instead of gunning the engines, because when you gun the engines, chances are you're going to uh, violate that noise ordinance. Doug McMurdo, editor at the Times Independent. Subscription information and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. The recent vandalism of petroglyphs in the Moab area is highlighting tensions in outdoor recreation and land management. At least that's how Moab Sun News reporter Rachel Fixon put it in one of her latest articles. She covered a virtual event held by climbing organization Access Fund that centered around the bolting of a new route through a petroglyph panel north of Arches National Park. I phrased the subhead that way kind of based on the webinar that was hosted by the Access Fund. They had three indigenous panelists who were also rock climbers, um, and then they also had as a panelist 
a professional rock climber who's from the area. And then they also actually hosted the person who bolted a route over top of a petroglyph panel on the Sunshine Wall. Um, that individual was from Colorado and he got into a conversation with Chris Schulte, who's a professional climber and kind of um, ended up being invited to be part of that panel. And so that was the group that was there. And some of the indigenous speakers were bringing up those issues of recreation on what we call public lands and what indigenous peoples call stolen lands. And they were very frank. And I think it was a very insightful discussion. And that webinar is available if you go to the Access Fund website. Um, I'd encourage people, even if you're not a rock climber, mm-hmm. to listen to it because there's a lot of really you know, tough issues that they bring up um, and some really valuable insight. That conversation I felt was pretty, pretty unique, especially for an organization that has been criticized by indigenous groups um, and was openly criticized during the meeting too for things that they might have done in the past that have been disrespectful to indigenous people. Yeah, I thought that was bold and I think it was important to be said. I think it was Ashley Thompson, the panelist, who brought that up and she said, yeah, the Access Fund has been part of legal actions that were against tribes and indigenous groups um, fighting for access to lands that those tribes maybe had wanted to close to rock climbing or close to visitation. And I just wanted to highlight something in your article in the Moms and News, Ashley Thompson, who you just mentioned also said in relation to vandalism on petroglyphs, she was saying that people might view this crime as victimless because they can't draw connections between these sites and people. And uh, that was a pretty remarkable statement. And I think that's what a lot of Native people are bringing up about this vandalism, that there are actually victims here. Yeah, a lot of the panelists mentioned um, actually Richard Gilbert, who is the climber who bolted the route at Sunshine Wall, um, he mentioned that he used to be a social studies teacher and he talked about in his experience in public education, both as a student and a teacher, um, curriculums present Native American culture as though it's a thing of the past, as though it's gone. And Angelo Baca, who is the cultural resources coordinator for Utah Dine Bakea, said that, you know, like damage to that rock art it's sort of like an erasure and sky the other panelists (laughs) she also mentioned she's a native hawaiian and she talked about a state park in hawaii that had many petroglyphs and the state didn't mention them there was no signage referring to them and these indigenous peoples feel like it's an erasure or like a denial of their existence these sites you know they're still important to people who have living, thriving cultures today. Um, It's not just people that don't exist anymore. Um, You know, you mentioned that Richard Gilbert, who was the climber that bolted the route through Sunshine Wall, was on the panel. Did you have any impressions um, from him? And, you know, what can people find in your article as far as statements that he might have made about his actions? He he definitely apologized and said that he was embarrassed um, and kind of expressed that his personal philosophy involves taking ownership of mistakes and then doing what you can to resolve or rectify mistakes. Um, And so that's what he was trying to do. And he said that when he, when he bolted the route, he didn't realize that they were legitimate petroglyphs. He thought it was just some 
recent graffiti. And then when he found out that it was a genuine panel, um, he said he drove out to Moab and contacted the BLM and said, hey, what can I do to help fix the damage? And yeah, was uh, brave enough to be part of that panel, which, you know, I'm sure thousands of people have watched by now, which can't be easy. Right. At least not backing away and, and trying to deny that he did it or, you know, and also participating in this panel to offer his his perspective in a way that sort of offered, I guess, a launching point for the conversation of why people are not educated about recreating responsibly on Indigenous lands. Yeah, and Chris Schulte had a good comment about that, that he said when he hears about things like this happening, he kind of, you know, loses heart a little bit because he's, you know, he's like, I've spent so much time trying to educate people from my position as a climber influencer. And then he said he realized that education is ongoing. You're never done with it. So you kind of have to like continue having those conversations and, and messaging. Anything else, Rachel, to mention about this piece? I do want to mention about this piece, an apology and a correction. Um, we'll run a correction in next week's print edition, but I erroneously cited Angelo Baca's tribal affiliations. So it's corrected in the online edition and we'll run a correction in the print edition, but I apologize for that error. Thank you for mentioning that. So this next article I wanted to mention uh, that you also wrote is on the inside of the paper, and it's talking about the city's strategies with regard to sustainability efforts. Now that there's a new staff person, new sustainability director in place to help implement them. Can you just talk a little bit about what the city council has sort of set out as goals. Sure. I think that um, council members are excited to bring sustainability back to the forefront. Um, They did lose their previous sustainability director. And then not long after that, coronavirus turned everyone's lives upside down. um, And that was kind of a focus. Carly Castle, um, who's the assistant city manager, she has some really great experience with sustainability issues, especially water from um, where she worked before in Salt Lake. And uh, she was kind of taking on some of those projects, but I think they're excited to have someone who that's going to be their whole focus. Water is definitely, you know, we've run some articles about it and I know you've done some pieces on it. It's definitely a big issue for us here in Moab and for everywhere (laughs) in the Southwest, of course. Um, So the city's definitely trying to come up with some strategies for water conservation and some policies that will encourage or regulate water use. conservative water use. They're also thinking about the dark skies ordinance. Uh, There's a a certain window of time that the city has to come into compliance to be able to meet the criteria to be dark skies certified. And I think about half of that window has gone by. So they they don't want to get right up against the deadline and realize Mm -hmm. that they haven't made any progress getting compliant with that. One, One thing people really talked about was they want to see sustainability Um, become part of the mission of every department. So instead of just being like there's one person that thinks about sustainability and kind of wags their finger at other departments, um, it becomes worked into the protocols of all departments. They're they're purchasing, choosing contracts when they put out bids, you know, just their their regular operations to kind of work that in. Finally, Rachel, um, can we mention a couple of cool things that you wrote in the paper about Grand County youth? There's this really uh, sweet photo of this little kid, you know, wielding a baseball bat, I assume. Um, Can you tell us about this piece? 
Yeah, this one was so fun to write. Um, McRae Ellis, he's a senior at Grand County High School, and he just signed a letter of intent to play baseball for a college in Minnesota. And yeah, he was kind enough to answer a few questions and just talked about how he started playing baseball, started playing t-ball when he was just uh, about five. And he sent us a really just heartwarming photo, (laughs) you know, him swinging the bat. Um, He looks like he has great form. I don't know anything about baseball, but you know, (laughs) like he's making a great hit in that photo <laughs> yeah he's excited to uh to go he's gonna study business and wants to open his own welding business and the athletics director at grand county high school ron dolphin had just really great things to say about his work ethic and his academics and his sportsmanship cool to see a grand county high school student use athletics at a higher level and there's one more youth related article of yours to mention yeah another um grand county high school student, a sophomore, Lillian Scott. She just was approved by the Grand County Commission to be the high school representative on the library board. It's a program they started in 2013 to include a high schooler. Um, It's a volunteer position, it's non-voting, but it does help the board kind of get a more reflective membership of the community and kind of allows them to have a perspective of youth and, and teen needs and interests. Um, And it'll be really great experience for Lillian. She'll get to see, you know, how local governments work. She'll learn Robert's rules and um, Open and Public Meetings Act stuff, which might not be the most thrilling (laughs) stuff, but, you know, it'll, it'll be helpful, whatever she does in life. It's, Uh I think it's helpful to, to kind of learn those nuts and bolts of how local government works. That's so neat. I feel like I was also the high schooler who would have loved to be on the library board. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. (laughs) Rachel Fixen, reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription information and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we speak with newspaper reporters and editors about the most recent stories they covered in our area. Find the pieces mentioned today in the show notes of the news on our website and podcast. Thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.